0: Before we get started, we wanted to give a shout out to our most recent financial supporters. Jonathan, Teresa, Jenny, Michael, Kayla, Melissa, Craig, and one person who identified themselves as and Flies and Jigs. I'm pretty sure that has to do with fishing, and I'm an angler myself, so try to give us more information on that. I'd love to take a look. Thank you very much, and now, on with the show. and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. Wow, what a voice. You're listening to a clip of Stronger Than Yesterday by Molly Morgan. A singer-songwriter from Columbus, Molly is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about her and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal.
1: Hi, everybody. Steve, let's have a listen to that clip I gave you. A local man is haunted by an unsolved murder he witnessed 35 years ago. He was 18 months old when his mother was raped and murdered in their Springfield, Ohio home. Now, for the first time, DNA
0: tests are underway on bloody shoe prints and towels taken from the home. Crime Stoppers
1: reporter Deborah Dixon shows us they're shedding new light on a case that went cold in 1966. That was WKRC Channel 12 in Cincinnati. Not yesterday, not last week but almost 20 years ago. As you can tell from the introduction to this feature, there was great hope for this cold case back then. DNA was young, but making an extraordinary difference in forensic science. It just wasn't advanced enough to solve the murder of Anita Taylor. Still, you could play that introduction right now, and it would be true, because a few months ago, the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation launched a new cold case unit and they added Anita Taylor to their list of priorities. DNA has taken a huge leap in the last few years and with some very impressive evidence collected at the crime scene back in 1966, authorities are hopeful once again. Let's go back to when this story began. It was 55 years ago. October 28, 1966, a Friday night, the eve of beggar's night. On Ludlow Street, just inside the city limits of Springfield, a mid-sized city in southwest Ohio, a young couple was beginning their family. Anita Taylor, a month from her 21st birthday and a dark-haired beauty, had just cashed her first check from her brand-new job working at a finance company downtown. She was married to her high school sweetheart, Larry Taylor, a 21-year-old laborer at the Robbins and Myers Industrial Plant. And they had a son, 18-month-old Aaron Lee. Both Anita and Larry worked that day. Anita first. She did her morning shift. Then she came home, and Larry headed off for his 4 p.m. job at the plant. Larry carpooled with a couple of guys he worked with, Morton Smith and Eddie Bartley. Anita would have locked the storm door after him. It wouldn't have offered much protection from an invader, but it's all they had. They didn't have a key to the rental home's front wooden door, so that was always unlocked. But Anita always locked the flimsy aluminum frame anyway. You see, she grew up in Selma, a more rural, unincorporated part of Clark County. And truth be told, living in a city with 81,000 people, Made her a little uneasy. Just a week earlier, her newspaper boy, Charles Herring, was making his collection rounds when he noted how she always locked that screen door. Apparently, it was an act seemingly out of place enough in 1966 Springfield that he asked her about it. Anita called his attention to a string of strangulation murders in Cincinnati, 80 miles away. She said that was her motivation. Something not so widely known was that Anita might have felt a more compelling reason closer to home. When she and Larry moved into that rental, she made it a goal that they would buy their own house one day, and she immediately began looking for a job to help save for a down payment. She applied for a position at Springfield Public Finance and was one of about 10 women seeking the same job. Some of those women were considerably more qualified. So she was stunned when she got the call. The man who had hired her apparently had taken a shine to her, and not necessarily in a healthy way. From day one, the supervisor started following her home every night. When she asked him why he was doing that, he told her he just wanted to make sure she got home okay. But clearly it was something that bothered her enough that she mentioned it to her mother. Anyway, after Anita got home from work on October 28th, she spent the rest of that evening doing some household chores, including laundry, her toddler playing about her. Her mom, Elizabeth Huffenberger, paid a visit before leaving about 7 p.m. At 1.36 a.m., Larry Taylor clocked out of his job at the manufacturing plant. Ten minutes later, his carpooling friends were dropping him off at his front door And then they continued on to Bill's Cafe, which was nearby on Sheridan Avenue. They wanted to cash their paychecks and start the weekend with a drink. Larry, meanwhile, walked up to his front door and knocked on that aluminum storm door. That was their routine. Sure, it was almost 2 a.m., but he knew Anita would be awake to let him in. But she didn't. He heard noise inside, though the living room TV, and what sounded like moaning. Larry forced the storm door open. It wasn't a big effort. It would have closed and locked itself behind him. And he found his wife. She was on the floor of the bedroom, savagely beaten and apparently sexually assaulted. And she was alive, barely breathing, but breathing still. She tried to say something, but blood was blocking her airway. He couldn't understand. Larry left the house and ran to Bill's cafe to get help from his co workers, who returned to the scene with him. I can only assume they didn't have a telephone. Springfield police and a crew from the fire station that was just two doors from the Taylor house were there within minutes. They found Larry and his co-workers waiting at the sidewalk. The first responders entered the house and found a bloodied Anita. They were stunned by the sheer brute force that had been used against her. She had been beaten about the head with an unknown object, though there would later be speculation it was a broken pop bottle that left lacerations across her face. The sole of a shoe was imprinted on her neck, and more partial shoe prints covered her face. She had been repeatedly stomped. Her bra and blouse had been pulled up to her neck. The rest of her clothes had been removed. She was semi-conscious, struggling to breathe through her crushed windpipe. And she wasn't the only victim. The couple's son was in his crib in a separate room, but he had also been beaten. His leg was broken and his small body covered in bruises. Anita and her battered son were transported to community hospital, but she didn't make it. She was pronounced dead on arrival, having drowned in her own blood.
2: Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present, Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.
3: Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. The
1: coroner believed she could have been attacked up to four hours before her husband found her. Officers found the back door of the house standing ajar and a loose bulb in the socket over the back porch. Nobody in the neighborhood heard or saw anything. Investigators collected 27 packages of evidence, including clothing, towels, shoes, and forensic evidence from the assailant. There was a bloody footprint at the scene, a relatively small foot, size eight and a half or nine, a partial fingerprint on that back porch light bulb, and semen. Larry Taylor was cleared in his wife's death. He had an alibi and modern forensic evidence from the scene has excluded him as well. A handful of people were brought in for questioning, including an old boyfriend, and a couple of polygraphs were doled out, but no real suspects were ever revealed. Baby Aaron spent a month in traction to set his shattered left leg. After that, Larry and Aaron moved in with the Huffenburgers, Anita's parents, He had a complicated relationship with his own family. But it was a difficult time for everyone. And after a dispute, Larry left his in-laws, took his child, and moved in with his mom. Before long, he was back. He asked Anita's parents to care for the boy. He wasn't capable, and he didn't have confidence in his own mother. And so baby Aaron was raised by the Huffenburgers in Selma where his mom had grown up. Aaron would later say his grandma was depressed after having lost her daughter in such a gruesome way and wasn't caring for herself. Having Aaron to care for saved her life, giving her something to live for, something to make her daughter Anita proud of. And being in the care of the steady and caring Huffenberger family made Aaron's life better. Larry Taylor, his father, remarried, had three more children, and slowly began removing himself from his son's life, only seeing him at Christmas and birthdays, and often not even then. Aaron recalled the last time he was with his father. It was a rare moment together, Christmas time, and Aaron was just 12. His father was showing him a muscle car he'd built. Then suddenly he turned to his son and said, you know, I loved your mother, don't you? Yes, Aaron said. He went on to tell his son that a lot of people thought he had killed her, but that he could have never done such a thing because he loved her with all his heart. It was the first time Aaron saw his father cry. The year after that, in 1978, Larry Taylor was killed in a motorcycle crash. Aaron shared all of this and more on a website that he's maintained for years so that his mother's unsolved murder stays before the public. You can find it at Taylorcase.com where he has clippings, police reports, and videos. In that interview with Channel 12 back in 2002, Aaron said he agreed with police that whoever killed his mother was no stranger. The crime was just too violent too personal
2: for so much violence and that and so much hatred or or anger one way or another it just doesn't make any sense for someone who was very demure very shy
1: among the things aaron has shared on his website is what he knew of his parents courtship anita and larry met after larry moved to south charleston that's another little village in clark near selma it was 1962 their junior year at Southeastern High School. Aaron has photos of his parents posing in one of those booths where you squeeze into a small cubby and a camera snaps four candid shots, usually of subjects offering up goofy faces or kissy poses. In those photos, his mom is wearing a Southeastern sweatshirt with his dad's high school ring clearly dangling from a chain around her neck. They graduated in 1963, They married the year after that. Baby Aaron entered the picture in 1965. Anyway, when Aaron grew up, he attended the same high school as his parents, and he walked the same graduation stage exactly 20 years after Anita and Larry. Then he went on to Miami University and Oxford. While Grandma Huffinger was alive, he made sure to visit her every weekend. Aaron wrote, I knew it was her only connection to her daughter. I kind of understand that role and what my existence meant to her, not just as her grandson, but as her grandson that sprung from her daughter that she lost. Aaron also shared what early investigators came to believe, that he may have been used as a bargaining chip during the attack. Since there was no sign of struggle in the house and nothing else was out of place, it was as if his mother offered to be obedient, if the assailant would only put the child in his crib and leave him alone. He's certain his mother's love protected him. Even though Aaron was just 18 months at the time of the attack, he underwent hypnotherapy in the late 1980s. And remarkably, he appeared to remember some bits and pieces He remembered piles of folded clothes. And he also had an image of someone holding an iron next to his face and him pulling away from the heat. He remembered even more about the period of recovery after he left the hospital, all of these visions coming from a time when he would have been younger than two years old. But he couldn't remember what he wanted to, the face of the man who had been there that night. In 1996, Aaron was in for another surprise. He was contacted by a brother he didn't know he had, a brother that turned out to be nine months younger than he was. That could only mean one thing. His father had been having an affair while his parents were living in that Ludlow bungalow.
3: Hey Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. even care if they are we are always unpacking that very question on sleepover cinema check out sleepover cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at Evergreenpodcasts.com. see you soon
1: the two brothers compared notes and realized they had already been in each other's lives in a way they attended rival high schools and had played sports against each other never knowing they shared blood. Aaron said his brother never had the chance to meet his father. Larry Taylor died in that motorcycle crash before the truth was known to him. Of course, that revelation added to the mystery. Larry had been forensically cleared in Anita's death, but could the attack have been connected in some way to Larry's philandering? Back in 1966, Springfield police collected a remarkable amount of evidence from the site, and that is giving Aaron and Springfield police a lot of hope that modern technology will identify the killer. As I said earlier, Anita's murder is among those recently taken on by the state's new cold case unit. Talking to the Springfield News Sun for a recent story, Springfield Police Detective Ron Jordan said generations of investigators have poured over the case, so he's excited about what new techniques the BCI might be able to apply. Detective Jordan said, they have resources that can help us out greatly with the testing of items for DNA and things along those lines. Last year, Aaron met with people from both the BCI and the State Attorney General's office, and was moved to see the expanded interest in his mother's case. It was very touching and emotional for me, he said. I've told the story about mom a million times, but having a dozen people in a room that are willing to help you, that was the part that was really touching. By the way, there was another murder in Springfield that season that had the city on edge. On November 2, 1966, less than a week after Anita's murder, a woman named Betty Falls Irwin was found lying along a rural road, severely beaten. She was a 26-year-old mother of three and worked in a local photo studio. Her battered body was found five miles from where Anita had been killed. Like Anita, Betty tried hard to cling to life and made it to the hospital, but she died there of her injuries her head split wide open. This one was solved immediately. An hour after she was found by a passerby, police picked up a 30-year-old man named Richard Jett, walking the street shirtless and covered in Betty's blood. They charged him in her murder. He confessed to beating her with a tire iron. Strangely, he also said he had shot her four times, though there were no bullet wounds on her. His motivation for killing Betty was not included in any story that I could find, but he denied having anything to do with Anita Taylor's murder, and evidence seemed to support that. Still, with two young mothers beaten to death just four days apart, Springfield residents were anything but comforted by that notion. Jett, by the way, went to prison with a life sentence for the murder of Betty Irwin. And in 1970, he escaped the penitentiary in Columbus. He was on the lam for two months when authorities received a phone call. Jet's brother said he was ready to turn himself in, but only if the warden himself went to collect him. And so warden Harold Caldwell went to Springfield, where Jet was waiting, and he found him in a parked car on the south side of town dead from a thirty-eight caliber blast to his chest. It was ruled suicide. Again, please say there was absolutely no connection between this case and the one of Anita Taylor.
0: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website,
1: ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Molly Morgan was born in Chicago spent a chunk of her life in Canton, Ohio, and then recently has been living in the Columbus area where she's hoping to pursue a career in law enforcement. But clearly, her heart belongs to music. Here's what Molly had to say about the new song we're sharing tonight. This song isn't directed towards a single person. It's a combination of different feelings and people throughout my life. It's to anyone who's ever hurt or put me down. This song is for anyone who has come through not just heartbreak, but any pain, bullying, or judgment. When someone hurts you or breaks your heart. Pain even caused by our own mistakes we've made in our life. This is to all of it. Go find Molly Morgan on Facebook and follow her, because we have no doubt there's much more to come.
0: Well, let's have another listen to Stronger Than Yesterday by Molly Morgan. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
3: You want to watch me